Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Genesis 1, 3-4 And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Isaiah 60, 1-3 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. John 8, 12 Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Good morning, Hill City. Thanks. I mean, you're best friends now. Austin, thanks. Well, we've got Lightco going to, uh, to Sunday morning. I wish I could be there with you guys, but I'll stay here. My name is Jonathan. I am the director of Lightco and Young Professionals here at Hill City. I'm the new guy on staff. Uh, I'll have a picture of me and my family. So uh, we took good use of the, of the Christmas photo uh, booth out there. It was awesome, right? Makes, makes for a great Christmas photo shoot. That's my wife, Amber. We've been married for 13 years. Uh, we met uh, at youth group, so there's hope, there's hope yet. Uh, and then Quinn, she's nine. Uh, we lived in Norman, Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner. Oh, I have a few more best friends. Quinn is nine, and Ollie Oliver is seven. He's gonna have he's gonna have that issue where we call him his nickname so much that he is not quite sure what his name is. His name is Oliver, but if you want to be friends with him, his name is Ollie. Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning, and let me just say something real quick uh, as we kind of transition into the sermon piece. But before I got to Hill City, I watched this video of. Uh, Brad walking through the building talking about something called gospel-tality. And I've been in the church world for a while, so I was like, oh yeah, make up your own own word and it means something and whatever, you know, like hospitality, that's important to all churches everywhere. But then I got here, and I just want to say thank you. Like, we have a hospitality team here, and we they show gospitality on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, but the body has welcomed my family so well, and the power that, that comes when you fuse the truth of the gospel with the warmth of hospitality is incredible. And I just want to say thanks. It, you, you guys were a picture of love, uh, what it means to follow Jesus to my family, and it's been really special, and, and we, love, we love being here at Hill City. We've begun our series in Advent called Echoes of Eden, 
And this past week, Aaron spoke on hope, how we can have hope beyond our circumstances, and how the God who speaks, I hope in your mind you're just like, in truth? What? Where did that come from? Who God, the God who speaks in truth is the one who spoke at creation, and he spoke the promise being fulfilled to Mary and Joseph. It was such a great reminder of the hope that we all can have in Christ Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at peace, and we're going to be in one of the quintessential Christmas stories, the visit of the wise men. So if you have a Bible, have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it up and go to Matthew 2. And as you turn there, I, I want to remind you that this is what I'm hoping we are reminded of this morning. This is the, the message in a sentence. I'm really hoping it sticks in your brain. King Jesus is the good news that brings peace to chaos. I hope that's the, the, the universal anthem of this sermon, but also of our lives, church. And as you turn to Matthew 2, I want to I ask a question. And maybe this is a little too personal. Too personal too soon, but we're going there. So, so buckle up. Do you ever struggle, like I do, celebrating someone else's good news? Uh, this happens to me way too much. Uh, it actually just happened to me. Uh, I was catching up with a friend. I hadn't talked with them in over a year. It had been a long time. Friends from seminary. And so we're given life updates, like right the speed dating thing. We're just going with fast information, and we're like, hey, what's going on with your life? And he's, he starts in, and he goes, man, things have been awesome. My church has been growing. It's like doubled in size. Uh, we just launched my wife's new business, and it is thriving. And dude, I just got accepted into a doctoral program. And I was like, oh, that's awesome, man. Like, praise God, this is so good. And I meant every word of it. But at the same exact moment, there was this shadow part of my heart that was like just seeping with jealousy and pride. And I wonder if you've ever felt that before. You've heard someone's good news, and you respond on the outside in the right way, right? That's what we do socially. But internally, you felt a little bit of a conflict. And you went, oh, man, everything's working out for them. But nothing ever works out for me. I've been really good lately. I deserve the good things that they've been doing. I'm doing the right stuff, and I'm not getting these things. I deserve these blessings. If you've ever been there like me, or maybe I'm just more of a sinner than you are, but there's been a lot of blogs and podcasts written about this, so I don't think I'm alone in here. I think we're just being a little quiet because it went too personal too soon. But here's the reality. We're going to see the greatest news ever shared. King Jesus is going to be announced, and we're going to get some different responses from people. We're going to look at how people are responding to the announcement of the good news, And then we're going to check at the very end, we're going to look at how we respond or receive the good news in our own lives. So in Matthew 2, we'll start in verse 1. It says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. 
So we're going to separate this story into three acts, three distinctions. The first one is just simply the announcement of the good news. The announcement of the good news. The next one we'll see is we're going to look at how some people in Jerusalem responded to this good news. And then finally, we're going to see what's the result of this good news? What does it bring in those who receive and trust and believe in the good news? So the first is just the announcement of the good news. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Scripture. I don't want to assume that you've been reading the Bible for a long time or, or anything like that. But I, we, we can't miss this. This is really unexpected. These three wise men, or if you're reading a different translation, you might see the word magi. And that really is a better translation of the word. It's just harder to say. But it's where we get our word magician from. These are the charlatans that oppose the disciples or the apostles as they are preaching in the book of Acts. These are the, the, the magicians who are interpreting dreams in the book of Daniel. And here in Jesus' time, these, they're probably in Babylon or Persia, somewhere yes, far east, and they loved to study magic and astrology and enchantments and the interpretation of dreams. And so they bring with them this major birth announcement, a new king of the Jews. And how they got there was God's providential hand. God, who created the stars, set a star in the sky. I have no idea how that's even possible. With supernova, comet, meteorite, is that a thing? I don't know. It was there, they saw it, and they went, right? And they sought to worship King Jesus. And here's what's interesting. They're going to Jerusalem. They're going to Jerusalem. They're the people that should be announcing the good news, but these foreigners who don't worship the Lord, who don't worship God, these pagans are coming in, and they are the ones announcing the good news within the walls of Jerusalem. This is not what we would expect This is not who we would expect to bring the good news. Now, Genesis 3 is the initial promise that there will be one from a seed who will come and crush the serpent's head. That's the promise of the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah is made clear to Israel, but this king flies under their radar. This would have If you're a Jewish reader and you're reading Matthew's gospel 2,000 years ago, you're reading it, you would be like, what? are you doing? Like, this would be offensive. Like, we have the message of the good news. And you're saying these wise men, these magicians from the East have brought the good news to us? They'd be offended at what we're saying. Now, I, I, I love this because I had no idea what the call to worship was this morning, but he brought it. And Isaiah 52 is exactly the poem I want to talk about. See, Isaiah 52 is this beautiful poem. It's this prophetic poem that comes about where Israel has just been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple is in ruins. It's still smoking. And most of Israel has gone into exile to Babylonian, Babylon. And the Babylonians have taken over. And there's a few Israelites left. And Isaiah receives a vision. And in this vision, there are watchmen on the city walls watching the mountains. You saw the end of it, the good news, the, the messengers who bring the good news have beautiful feet. But these watchmen are looking out 
at the mountains, and they see a messenger running towards the city. And the messenger is, is screaming this, good news, good news, your king reigns. And what do the watchmen do? They lose it. Woo! They're so excited, right? They're like, this is not a threat. This is good news. This is awesome. This is what we've been waiting for. The announcement of the good news, but this is backwards. It's coming from outside of the walls inside Jerusalem. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may, or maybe you've been in the church for a while, you may have taken a spiritual gifts test. Any, any fellow spiritual gift testers in here? Okay. Well, I should have, there's a few of us. You might be offended by what I say. I hate spiritual tests. I mean, I just do not like them, right? Maybe it's because I took offense to the one that I took a few years ago, but I took this test, spiritual gifts test, is supposed to tell you what the Spirit has gifted you in and to use that in ministry. I took this test, and it reminded me of college because it was like a Scantron-like form, and I was like, when does this end, right? And I eventually just started putting everything in the middle because I don't know and I don't care. And the end of it showed me my results. And it showed me my results that didn't have the gift of preaching in there. And I don't need an amen. I'm still very sensitive, right? I'm processing it. And it's, it's hurtful. And I didn't have the gift of evangelism. So I'm like, what am I doing with my life at this point? Like, I'm just in the wrong spot. And it's not that they don't have any value to add. Spiritual gift tests, they have value to add. We just weigh them too much. Like, there's some of us in there, like the thought of taking that test and seeing the gift of evangelism there, you're like, no way. I hate talking to strangers. Like, will not do it, won't do it, thanks again, right? You shred it and you forget about it. Like, gift of evangelism is maybe not something you want, but it's just that whenever we take those tests, it either tells us we need to do it or we shouldn't do it. Friends, everyone is an evangelist. God uses everything he has created and everyone whom he has called to be messengers of the good news. Amen? Oof. Hey, God's not looking for the most articulate person. Do you understand that? Moses had a stutter. There's, there's things in Scripture where we can be reminded of. God's not looking the, for the person who has the, the, the most answers to the hardest questions. He's not... He's not looking for the one who's gifted in apologetics. He's looking for you. You have been called to preach the good news. Just like these wise men show up. Now, they didn't, they didn't think, okay, well, here we go. At this time, this certain hour, I'm going to say it this way, and I'm going to do an altar call at this point. No, they were just what? Seeking to worship the king. And by seeking to worship the king, they can't help but to announce the good news. They can't help it. So if the gospel has so radically changed our lives, it oozes out of us. We can't help but to talk about the good news, proclaim the good news, announce the good news. It's just what we do. Have you ever noticed that you talk about the things you love the most? I mean, if I'm with you for more than five minutes, I guarantee I'm going to start talking about my wife, Amber. I'm going to start talking about my kids. 
And then I'm going to try to sneak in an office joke subtly just to see, just like to see the water temperature. Like, are you a fan? Are you not? Are you offended? Okay, never mind. It's not a show you should watch. I can't help it. These are the things that I think about. I love. I just oozes out of me. But just as you just, you, you don't have to think, like, how can I turn this conversation, like, in a strategic way to talk about my wife? Like, no. I love her, and I'm, I'm just looking for an opportunity to tell you about her. I'm looking for an opportunity. It oozes out of us. When the gospel so radically changes your life, you are a messenger. You are. You can't help but to announce the good news of the kingdom. So that first section, right? You're invited as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as you seek to worship God, to announce the good news. Second, we look at verse 3. So look, look back at the text, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler. It's from Micah 5.2. Who will shepherd my people Israel? 2 Samuel 5.2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the announcement of the good news, it reaches the walls of Jerusalem and it travels all the way up to a man named King Herod. Now we know a lot about this man's life, uh, but just to put it like, let's get a foundation for him. He lived out a soap opera, like that was his life. It was chaos. And he was known by three nicknames, and I think this will be helpful as we get a framework for who this man was and how he responded to the gospel. He was known as Herod the Great, not for his great gifting in leadership, not for his great character, not for any of that stuff that matters, but he he did a great job at building some great buildings. So in history, he's known as King Herod the Great because the building campaigns were extremely successful. He was also known as Herod the Paranoid. Now, historians have called him paranoid because he would do anything to protect his throne. That caused him to kill three of his sons and to kill his favorite wife, which that's a weird statement in of itself, but he didn't trust her, so he got rid of her, cut her out, right? He did some terribly evil things. This man was paranoid, and he would do anything to protect his throne. And the final one is that he was known as the king of the Jews. Now, Herod wasn't a Jew, and he wasn't from the Davidic line, so he didn't actually have a right to the throne, but he was appointed by Rome, and the Jews did not like him. So when this news, this last nickname, king of the, king of the Jews, do you see a problem that has just occurred? King Herod the paranoid is sitting up there, and he hears, a what? Who? A newborn king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. Where is he? Right? And that's exactly what he does. He goes to the scribes, the people who would know where the Messiah was to be born, who would rightfully take the throne, the king of the Jews, and enter the scribes. And these scribes were experts in the law. 
they, most of them would have had memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. I mean, massive chunks. And they would apply that to daily living. And the scribes would love the positions that they would have uh, be beside those who are in authority. So these scribes are next to Herod, and Herod asks them, do you know where this newborn king is? And here's what's crazy. Yeah, I do. At Bethlehem. I mean, it's clear in prophecy. Like, why? It doesn't matter. See, they knew the answer. They knew where to find the king. The wise men were seeking the king. The scribes were sitting on their hands thinking, yeah, so? The king was born in their backyard, and they didn't care. See, during Jesus' ministry, he will address this exact thing. I love this. So later on in Jesus' ministry in John 5, he speaks directly to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Life. This is the heart of why the scribes responded this way to the good news. Friends, there is no salvation in Scripture. Scripture points to the one by which we are saved. Eventually, Herod, or eventually the scribes and the Pharisees would be a group that would consistently oppose King Jesus. They would never catch it. They would never see him as their king. This, is, this couldn't be their king. They rejected their king. Later on, Jesus will say, but this is where we're reminded that God is not God is not an object. See, our knowledge of God, I especially think in our, the Bible Belt where we exist culturally, knowledge of God, we treat like he's an object. We can just know more about him. And like the scribes, when we memorize God's word, we get really proud when we know the right answer, right? Maybe we've set, this, set ourselves up for failure with Sunday school. Whatever it is, like we're just anxious. We're like, I know so much about God. But do you know him? Like, if you come to me and you ask, hey, tell me about your wife, Amber. And I say, Amber, she was born in April of 19. But I'm not going to say the year. I almost did. <laughs> Welcome. She's 5'2". She was born to the parents of blah, blah. You'd be like, are you okay? Like, you would, you would distance your, that something's wrong. I'm, you're not looking for facts about her as an object, you're looking about information about our relationship. Like, what have you found out about her because of your love for her? Like, we know God not because we know so much about God. We know him because he loves us. He brings us into relationship so that we can read his word and know more about him, so that we can love him more and know more about him, so that we can love. Do you see where we're going? So often, I think, we, are, we fell for the lie that Christianity is just about knowing the right answers. Like, oh yeah, we've, we've got the answer. Well, what does that mean for your life? Do you know God in a way that affects your heart? All true belief leads to true action. Knowledge of God linked to your love for God is 
the journey with Christ. If we just know the answer like the scribes, we'll sit on our hands and we'll think, I'm comfortable, I guess. I mean, he hasn't let me down yet. That's the Christian life we're called to announce? No. It's that he loves us. See, I grew up in the church and that was such a blessing for me. But quickly, I equated things like highlights in, the, in a Bible as signs of spiritual maturity. I equated like large leather-bound books on a bookshelf as really spiritually mature. Wow, you must know so much about God. I want to be just like you. Knowledge of God is good. It is vital for the Christian faith. But knowledge of God alone does not save. Many will come to him and say they know him and will not be welcomed in. So where are you at in that? Is your knowledge of God, the, what you know in your mind, is it connected to your heart? Does it change what you love and what you do? Does it change the trajectory of your life? Does it change what you're doing? After Herod figures out the location, I love this, he secretly summons, right? It's the villain in the shadows going, okay, so now I know the place. I got to know a time frame. I got to know how to pinpoint so I can remove, so I can remove this threat from my throne. So he secretly summons the wise men. And he tries to get them to do his bidding. Hey, you, uh, you actually, you should, you should go find him. Go find him, and then here's what you'll do. Come tell me, and I would love to worship him too. Now, that's not just conjecture. You're not like, wow, you're assuming a lot. Look, look down just a little bit in verse 16, and this is terrible. He has no desire to worship the king. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So why did he want to know more about King Jesus? So he could murder him. The announcement of the good news of this new king of the Jews was a threat to him. It had to be removed. In a futile, last-ditch effort to protect his throne, he orders the massacre of innocence. His troubled, right? He feels, he feels troubled by this news. It actually says that all of Israel feels troubled because I don't know if this was true of your house. It was true of mine. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, ain't no one in Jerusalem happy. His grip on the people was terrible. It was evil. He created chaos for all that was under his rule and reign. So trouble for him meant trouble for them. But here in the reality, his trouble turns to fury. And his sin of pride leads to the destruction of infants. Remember the picture of the watchman in Isaiah's vision, right? The watchman on the towers. They see the messenger and they, they what do they do? Yes! It's here, right? They rejoice exceedingly. They're filled with joy. They welcome it in. They don't reject it. They celebrate it. So why here do we see that Herod and the scribes reject the good news? What causes them to reject the good news of Jesus Christ? 
Ever since Genesis 3, we have to realize that we are completely and totally broken. We're not sinners by action. We're sinners by nature. We are children of wrath. Sinners respond to the good news in this way. They reject it in their pride. It takes a work from the Holy Spirit in the, belie- in the person's heart to change the heart, to open the eyes so that they may see the light. I love how sc- Scripture consistently speaks of sin as darkness and how Jesus is the kingdom of light or the kingdom of heaven. Satan is over the domain of darkness. At the very beginning in the scripture reading, we look through creation and prophecy and fulfillment and ultimately proclamation or mission of what the light of Christ looks like. But here, sin rejects saving. Darkness does not agree with light. In fact, it's not an absence of light. Look at what Jesus says in John 3, 17. Light has come into the world. Yes, through who? Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. It's it's not that they were seeking the light. There is light. They just love the dark. The issue that we have as humanity, as people, is that we are sinners. Period. We are broken. We choose what we love, and what we love most is sin, selfishness, pride, apathy, comfort, success, whatever it is. We choose and we glorify those things and we serve that God instead of the one true God because of sin. See, the problem is that sin has corrupted our eyes and our ears. So, King Herod's hardness of heart caused him to be more interested in saving his throne than saving his soul. The scribe's hardness of heart heard the good news and didn't care. How is your heart going to respond to the good news this morning? Before we get to the third act, the final act, If you are in here and you're like, what's the good news? I've used that term a lot. I don't want to assume that you know. The good news is better than you could ever expect. See, the good news is that because we have rebelled, we've all done some wrong in our lives. We're all sinners. And even beyond our nature of sin, we are sinners by action as well. We do bad things. Whenever you feel that, whenever someone shares good news with you, and you think, man, why doesn't that happen to me? I'm jealous. That needs to happen. That's sin. That's that's sin causing issues in your life. And sin creates chaos. And knowing that we could never reach heaven, we couldn't ever do more good than bad. We couldn't ever get to God. Heaven came down to us in the incarnation of Christ. Christmas is all about how Jesus became flesh. The Father sent the Son, and the Son made a way through His judgment. The Son made a way for us. And do you know how you could receive that good news? By grace through faith. 
This is not something you do. You don't have to work for this. This is how it gets to be the greatest news ever. You receive it. You trust in it. If the Holy Spirit is stirring something in your heart and you think, I'm not so sure. I've got questions, but I I feel something this morning. I need to talk to someone about this. There will be people during communion. And I I would love for you to come and you pray with them. Ask them questions. Because there's no greater day than today to come and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a believer, you are following the Lord, I hope that's an encouragement to you. The gospel is our fuel, right? This is why we're here. The good news of Jesus Christ. Receive it again and again. Preach it to yourself. But now this next one is how we are called to worship. This final good news brings peace to chaos. Verse 9 says this, After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God's sovereign, providential hand is setting stars in the sky and casting visions to ensure the king's arrival is successful. That he is here and he is to be worshipped. Now, there's a couple things I... I want to point out. Well, the, the, the first is, you got to catch this. Like, in the story of Scripture, right, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, he sets it off with a bang. And he says, hey, this is not just king of the Jews. Jesus, he's the king of kings. He's the king that welcomes foreigners in. He's the king that's not just over Israel, but over humanity, over all of creation, is subject to him. And whether we do today or in eternity, all will bend the knee to the king of kings. See, this is the moment the Jewish religion is blown up. The Messiah has come. They missed it. But this Messiah is for everyone. And the first worshipers are foreigners coming from afar to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see in their worship. So how are these, how are these wise men receiving the good news? The first is this. When they saw the star, they did what? They lost it, right? Like, they were stoked. I mean, they were like, I rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, Can you think of a time in your life when you just were like, I can't control my happiness, right? Like, it was a circumstance that came in and you just were boiling over because of what you felt. This is what they're feeling. They're saying, look at at how this God has provided for me in directing my way to King Jesus, the King of the Jews. I will go and worship Him. They rejoice at seeing the star. They rejoice exceedingly. Now, the second thing I want us to see is that the wise men respond in a unique way. Not unique to Scripture, but maybe unique for us today. What do they do upon coming face to face with King Jesus? They fell down 
and worshipped him. Now, this is a unique theme throughout Scripture. In the book of Revelation, when, when John gets his vision of the glorified Son, and he sees him face to face, says, When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's all I could do. Abram fell on his face when God appeared to him. In the transfiguration of Jesus, the disciples fell on their faces and eventually would say, can we just stay here? Like, this is really, really good. Paul fell down on his face when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is a continual theme. When you come face to face with your king, you can't help but to fall down and worship him. Why? Because at that moment, you understand that he's way better than you could have ever imagined. He's way more infinite than you can comprehend. He's way more loving than you ever thought. And you are way more sinful than you ever thought. In that time, right, in Revelation, in the count, Jesus comes near to John and touches him, welcomes him in. And this is worship to fall down and worship. And the wise men came ready. This is like, if we don't think through us coming on a Sunday, we might just show up, listen, oh, music was good, yeah, the vibes were all right, all right, what's for lunch? What? No, we come ready in this place. We come ready because we're seeking not more knowledge of God. That is part of it. We're seeking to love Him more. And we love Him more when we see His face more clearly. The journey of the Christian life is growing in seeing the face of Christ until ultimately we see it upon glory. There's so much beauty in Him. More beautiful than we could ever imagine. Now they also come bearing gifts. Or do they open up to him? What they treasure. Now, there's a point to be made that it's not just emotion in our worship. It's just not the feels that we get. It's not just singing. It's our knowledge in our brains, knowing who he is in truth, believing and loving in our hearts, walking in obedience and giving with our hands. They open up. They give what matters to them. They give to show that Jesus, this King, is more important. And so what would it look like for your worship to be tied to giving, your time, giving your talents, what you're good at, and giving your treasure financially? What does it look like to, to tie your worship to sacrifice? So have you responded to King Jesus in this way? Have you humbled yourself before him? Searched out your heart and saw those shadow areas and be like, ah, I'm still jealous. I'm still envious. God, help me. I repent of my sin. And in your forgiveness, I receive it and I walk in it. He brings peace to us in this moment. There's chaos all around. Herod's plotting, the scribes are sitting, and the wise men are worshiping. Where will you be found? Peace is found 
when we kneel before King Jesus. Now, if you are serving communion, would you go and prepare the table for us? And as they do that, let me ask a question. What does his peace look like in your life? See, you might hear me saying something that I truly don't don't mean. See, when we hear the word peace, a lot of times we think of the absence of conflict. That it that is not true of the biblical word peace. In Hebrew, this is maybe the one Hebrew word you know. It's shalom. That is the word for peace. And see, peace means much more than simple absence of conflict. It means making something broken complete, making something incomplete whole. So in the peace of Christ, Jesus says this, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. When that comes into our life, what does that look like? It's not a promise to live a life of surreal bliss. Your your life will be filled with conflict and chaos because of the sin of the world, a sin inside you. It's part of where we are. We experience conflict because of our brokenness. But the peace He gives is He makes us whole. He makes us whole in the sense that he, there's no longer a conflict between God and man. Jesus is that peace. He is that peace, and it is for all eternity. And that's the fuel of our worship. We receive that peace, and we act on it. We know who God is, and we love him. Now, let me, let me end with a, a story before we receive communion. So, last Thursday, I had my first Salt Co. experience. Any Salt Co. peeps in here? Okay. First, let me apologize. The first gathering, I said there was like 300 college students there. Aaron texted me, four, 500. I almost did it again. Like, he's going to be like, bro, come on. 500 of my now closest friends or in college, and I get, get to worship with them. And I, I bring this up, not to say go to Salt Coat, but that would be good. But it was awesome. Like, if you're beyond the college years, there's a chance that you've lost some of the joy of your salvation. Because I have. I'm so much around the things of God in ministry doing the work of the ministry, going to church on Sunday, leading Bible studies, attending city groups, doing this, doing that. Everything is just in the church world. That it can become ordinary. What we do here is anything but ordinary. What we do here is we worship the King of kings because of the peace that he's given us. Because we know him and we love him and he loves us. He receives our worship as a fragrant offering. And so when I was there, I was reminded of the joy. The exceeding abundant abundant joy of worshiping King Jesus. Now this is more than just, hey, you need to raise your hands or more emotion. I'm not saying that you worship in your way, but your worship must be based in love and truth. And as you love him more... That needs to come out in expression. Obedience, walking with him. Joy that goes beyond circumstances. Hope 
That goes beyond circumstances, what we've already believed. Because why? Because Jesus is enough. Now in this moment, we're going to receive communion. And I want to remind you of this, this moment that this is a meal for those who are following Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have repented of your sin and you have turned to him and trusted in his salvation, then come to the table. Now, if you haven't done that, if you're not following with Jesus yet, then I, I just want to say humbly, please sit this one out. But if, if you're just thinking a little bit, the Spirit's stirring a little bit in your heart or mind, or you have a question, you need prayer this morning, we're going to have people out front. But you might be in a place where you think, man, my life is just total chaos. My life is disordered. It sounds like you need a miracle. And Jesus doesn't say, get yourself right, get your life in order and then come to me. He's in the business of bringing order to chaos. Let his son come in through the work of the Spirit and transform your heart and your mind today. Would you pray with me?